and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report that updates us on the Discover Space Weather Satellite. We dip into Stephanie Phillips' archive segments, labeled Now You Know, and revisit her conversation with Sullivan County historian John Conway on the topic of our local area's tanning industry. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. First, here's news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The U.S. Congress has heard from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky via a Zoom call this morning as Russia wages its 10th day of war on his nation. Zelensky is seeking more help from the U.S. and Western allies. His calls for a no-fly zone, however, have been rebuffed by NATO. Fighting remains intense in central Ukraine as Russia attacks Kiev in a so far unsuccessful attempt to take the capital. And in the south and east, Ukraine says Russia has reneged on a promise to pause shelling. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from Ukraine. This ceasefire was not what it seemed. It was very short-lived. Russia said it would allow safe passage of civilians from two cities that have been under heavy attack, Mariupol and Volnavaha. But less than three hours after the ceasefire started, Ukrainian officials say Russia resumed shelling. Now Ukrainian officials are advising residents to shelter in place instead of escaping. Negotiations with Russia to set up a safe humanitarian corridor go on. The port city of Kherson in the south is so far the only major Ukrainian city to fall to Russia. But the BBC's Sasha Schlichter is there and reports residents remain defiant and protesting. Chanting Ukrainian patriotic slogans and hurling abuse at the occupiers, the people sounded angry and desperate, begging for the outside world to know they will not be cowed. Videos on social media show Russian troops firing into the air to deter the approaching crowd. On Friday, Hersonites snubbed what appears to be an attempt to stage a PR stunt, distribute humanitarian aid from lorries in the city centre, and then package it into a Russian TV propaganda report. Instead, as Ukraine's TV noted, people took to the streets, chanting, Glory to Ukraine, and Who Needs Grub from the Occupiers? That's the BBC's Sasha Schlichter reporting from Russian-occupied Kherson. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Poland pledging U.S. aid to help a refugee crisis unfolding there. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more. The U.N.'s refugee agency says more than 1.2 million people have fled Ukraine since the Russian invasion 10 days ago. More than 700,000 have crossed into Poland. Polish Foreign Minister Zbigniew Rau is warning of a refugee crisis on, quote, an unimaginable scale. Blinken thanked Poland for stepping in to help. At this moment of crisis for millions of Ukrainians, and as the security of Europe hangs in the balance, Poland has stepped forward with generosity, with leadership, 
with resolve. Blinken says the U.S. will give Poland nearly $3 billion in humanitarian assistance to help care for Ukrainian refugees. Joanna Kakesis, NPR News, Zhezhov, Poland. That's NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Popic, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Sullivan County historian John Conway speaks with Stephanie Phillips. In this archive segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about the history of our local tanning industry. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with his Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. In 2015, the Discover Space Weather satellite was launched into orbit on board one of SpaceX's Falcon 9 rockets. Seven years later, the upper stage of that rocket was still in space. The rocket was too far away to be pulled back to Earth, and it had too little fuel to return. Instead, it has been on a nomadic journey influenced by Earth's and the Moon's gravitational pulls. Yesterday, this journey came to a violent end with the rocket crashing into the lunar surface. This is the first time that we know of that humans have accidentally crashed an object into the moon. NASA has conducted missions to intentionally crash objects into the moon starting in the 1950s. In 2009, they crashed the L-Cross spacecraft into the moon to look for water particles in the impact debris. The Falcon 9 rocket is about the size of a school bus, weighs 4 tons, and is traveling through space at 5,600 miles per hour. While the rocket will be destroyed by the impact, the moon will get a small new crater. The impact will send a massive plume of lunar dust into the thin atmosphere of the moon. About a day or so later, the dust will settle down over a wide area. The rocket is predicted to crash in the Hertzsprung crater on the moon's far side. NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter will use its cameras to identify the impact site, the search for which might take weeks or months. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future StarTalk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and StarTalk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I have the honor this morning of speaking with John Conway, Sullivan County historian. 
John is going to talk about an early industry that shaped the landscape and the economy of Sullivan County, the tanning industry. My name is John Conway. I've been the Sullivan County historian since 1993. And by the way, that's longer than anyone's ever been the county historian before. So I'm sort of a history maker myself. And my office is here in Hurleyville, and I'm happy to be a guest on your show. What exactly does the Sullivan County historian do? The position of county historian is actually mandated by the state. Back in 1919, the state passed what has become known as the Municipal Historian's Law. And it mandated that every town and village in the state have an official historian. And that law was amended a couple of times, but in 1933, it was amended to include the county. So a county had an official historian beginning in 1933, and that county historian was tasked with coordinating the activities of the other municipal historians in his jurisdiction and otherwise really shaping the job more or less according to his own strengths and interests. So if you were a teacher, you taught. If you were a writer, you wrote, etc. And so every county in the state has a county historian. Sullivan County has had seven in our existence starting in 1933. My primary goal, I guess, has been to try to tell our story. There still is a lot of Sullivan County's history that has simply not been explored. There are lots of untold stories left. Reconstructing the evolution of the resort industry, the role that the three great industries, which I've dubbed the three T's, timber tanning and tourism, played in our development and how they're intertwined. Those are the kinds of things that I've tried to concentrate on. I do a lot of speaking engagements around, probably 50 a year the last several years. How did you end up as a history expert? Well, I guess you could blame my father for that. I've always had an interest in history, and I never really thought too much about pursuing it more than just academically. But when I came back to Sullivan County in 1977, I was operations manager at WSUL Radio for a time, and I did a call-in show. And I had been doing a call-in show at that point for probably five or six years. I had probably the first in the country call-in radio show on FM radio. It was very unusual at the time, and I had probably the first in Atlanta, Georgia in 1975. But at any rate, I was doing a call-in show in Monticello on WSUL, and I used to have occasionally, as a guest, a local historian by the name of Bert Feldman. Bert was the town of Bethel historian. And Bert was a colorful character. He'd come on, you know, every month or every six weeks and help me do a program. And he'd ask questions about Sullivan County history. And he seemed to have a lot of fun doing it. So I started to get more and more interested. I'd always been a history buff. I minored in history in college. And one week that Bert was supposed to be on, he got sick and he canceled and I had to do it myself. And that was kind of the start of it. Sort of simultaneously, I had started to do a column for the record, which I never envisioned as being an historical column. It was more of a nostalgia column. It was about recollections of a young man coming of age here in Sullivan County during the era of the great hotels, the late 50s and early 60s, my memories. And in doing that column, I recognized that people had this thirst for knowledge about 
history. People always want to know, like, where was the first hotel and when did it happen? And I think they had this innate sense that we didn't just wake up one day and there were 528 hotels here in the county, that it had evolved from somewhere. So that's kind of how it all came together. And it just happened that my wife kind of fed into that interest. At any rate, 1991, the Board of Supervisors asked me if I'd be interested in county historian. It took them almost two years, but finally in February of 93, I was appointed county historian. Let's talk a little bit about that history. Sure. When were the Catskills first settled and by whom? To start out that conversation, you need to define the Catskills. Only for a small group of people is Sullivan County really considered the Catskills. For most people, the Catskills start in northern Ulster and Greene County and what we would think of if we live in Sullivan County as the northern Catskills. But Sullivan County was settled in the mid-18th century, uh, around 1755. A group from Connecticut came. There had been some small movement into the county prior to that, but the first permanent European settlement was probably mid-18th century along the Delaware River. A group called the Delaware Company established the community they called Cushitunk. That settlement was directly responsible for the beginning and the growth of the timber industry, and the county really grew from there. So fairly recent settlement, really. So it wasn't starting with the Dutch. There were some Dutch in and out. There were some isolated Dutch families that settled in the Mamakating Valley. But the Dutch primarily were South Vera. You have to understand that looking outside, it's probably not a surprise. But Sullivan County was a pretty difficult place to live, to get around in. It was heavily forested, very rocky terrain. So most of the early settlement was along the Delaware River and in the Mamakating Valley. There wasn't a lot of movement in the interior because it was just a real difficult place to settle and to move around in. You've often talked about the tanning industry. It apparently was major industry around here. Can you tell us exactly what tanning was? Yes, it had nothing to do with going into the little booth with the ultraviolet light. And Tanning was actually the transformation of animal hides into leather. And in the days before plastic, of course, leather had many uses that we might not think about today. The primary use for the leather tanned in Sullivan County was the soles of boots or shoes. Because of the nature of the hemlock tree, and I'll explain the process in a minute, and the water that we had here, there was some combination that created this very peculiar leather that had a reddish tint to it, but it was very durable, very supple, was easily worked, and was ideal for the soles of boots. And it was known as sole leather. The hemlock tanning process had actually started in the Berkshires and had moved into Greene County. And by 1816, it had arrived in Ulster County. A man named William Edwards brought it to Ulster County, and these great tanneries began to grow up around the hemlock stands. The tanners became very wealthy, but they quickly realized that when they ran out of hemlock tree, and all they used, by the way, was the bark, and the common practice was to fell the tree in the forest where it stood, peel the bark off, and leave the tree there. They didn't have much use for that. It doesn't have much use. We tried to use one for a Christmas tree last year, and all the needles promptly fell off. Well, see, that's exactly right, and that's why... 
Sullivan County had so many hemlock trees because the early settlers knew that, and they disdained land with hemlocks on. They avoided that, and there was no reason to really cut them down. Although there's a great story about hemlocks that predates the tanning industry by centuries when the the French explorer Jacques Cartier was exploring North America. One winter, his ships became frozen in place on the St. Lawrence River, and his men began to get sick and die, we realize now, from scurvy. They had no idea what was happening, but the Native Americans brought them hemlock boughs, and they showed them how to make a tea from the needles. And that was very heavy in vitamin C, and it was able to cure their scurvy. And men began to get better all of a sudden. didn't help the men who had died. So that was the miracle of the hemlock. But the early settlers didn't know that. They just knew the tree had a shallow root system. It fell over easily. It choked off everything else. So there were lots of hemlocks here. And the tanners realized early on that when you depleted the hemlocks, it was much easier to just abandon the tannery and move to another stand of hemlocks rather than try to transport the trees or the bark. So that's why the tanning industry moved from the Berkshires to Greene County to Ulster County to Sullivan County. And when we ran out of hemlocks here in the 1880s, they continued to move west into Pennsylvania. And a lot of folks, by the way, moved with it. So the tanning industry was responsible for a lot of things. Communities grew up, a number of our communities grew up around the tanneries that had not existed before. It brought immigrants here. Two of my great-grandfathers came from Ireland to work in the tanning industry, and that was a common practice. To me, it's always interesting to see why did those groups come. You know, my great-grandfathers didn't want to be working in the tanneries either. And eventually they saved their money and they bought farms, and one of my great-grandfathers became very successful. The other one started a boarding house and raised six or eight kids and his boarding house became part of the Concord Hotel and so I guess he was pretty successful as well, but not financially, but they didn't stay in the tanning industry. So I think groups have to work their way up. It's the latter. That was the story. We depleted the hemlocks. No one thought about maybe we should replant if we want to continue this. In a way, that's probably a good thing. We moved on from tanning, and tourism became our new industry, and certainly that made us world famous, so we can't complain about that. Mongop Valley is a great example. I don't know if you've been through Mongop Valley lately, but it's nothing really there to speak of. But at one time, that was the second largest community in Sullivan County in terms of population. How big was the industry? How many people did it employ? At the peak, which was probably during the Civil War, because we tanned more leather than any county in the Union. There were about 40 tanneries in Sullivan County, and most of those tanneries employed more than 100 men, especially during bark peeling season when they had people just going out and peeling the bark. And as I said, entire communities would grow up around those tanneries. So if you look at places like Mongup Valley or Swan Lake, which was previously Stevensville, Cashecton Center, which started out as Stevensburg, Fallsburg. These places grew up around the tanneries. They didn't exist prior to the arrival of the tannery. First tannery came here in 1831. It was a very short-lived industry. By the 1880s, all of those 40 tanneries, except for one, were gone. Only one lasted into the 20th century, and that was the tannery in Monticello, which had moved beyond hemlock tanning. There were other chemicals that were being used, and by the time that tannery burned to the ground in the 1920s, it was tanning book leather. 
it had transitioned from the old sole leather to book leather, and that's why it was able to sustain itself. What kind of equipment did the industry need? What kind of buildings did they have? It was really a pretty simple process. The buildings were the main infrastructure, usually very long and narrow buildings. Some of these tanning buildings were 350, 400 feet long. It mainly consisted of vats. The two things you needed most were hemlock bark and water. So Sullivan County was perfectly positioned for that. And then we brought the people in. The hides came in from out of the area. They were not local hides that were tanned. The hides came from all over the world. We had hides coming from Argentina, Morocco, depending on what the intended use was. What kind of animals were they from? Primarily cattle. But there were other types of hides as well. So you built these vats, and the animal skins were laid in layers with the tanning agent, the tannic acid, as the other layer. And they were just left there. The process took about a month or more to tan a hide. It was a very smelly process. The effluent was pretty nasty. Dumping that into the streams, it was one of our first environmental disasters. So together with the acid factories that came around a little bit later, that effectively poisoned a lot of the streams. And it wasn't until the railroad came along and kind of restocked and cleaned up the streams a little bit that the tourism industry was really able to kick in. How were the hides transported? Was the DNH canal a factor in that? Oh yeah, in the early days that was the primary way of transporting the hides. That's why the DNH canal was such an important factor economically in our history. You know, it was built without any thought given to Sullivan County. We had nothing to do with the canal. We just happened to be in the way. But economically, its impact was immeasurable bringing the hides in, shipping the leather out, bluestone industry. Most of the early industries could not have existed without the canal. Yeah, that was fortuitous that the canal had been built in 1828, and the tanneries came right on the heels of that. I assume that the finished product wasn't manufactured here. Where did those hides go? Who were the customers? Primarily the hides went to New York City. There was actually a pretty large leather industry in the city. There was an area around what is Wall Street today, which was known as the Swamp. And that was kind of the center of the leather industry in Manhattan. And from there, they went all over. We did not manufacture boots or anything of that nature here. The leather was all shipped out. Not much foresight there. I guess no one really cared because the owners of the tanneries were making so much money. And some of these men owned several tanneries. Unfortunately, they were short-sighted, and that's why most of them ended up losing their fortunes. Very few of them died wealthy men. There were a few, but most of them lost their fortune because the hemlocks were depleted. A great illustration of this, there was an article actually written by an author whose pseudonym was Argosy, I believe. At any rate, he wrote about a trip that he took through Sullivan County. He had settled at one point in DeBruce for a few days, and he was marveling at how beautiful DeBruce was, and he was taken with the size of the tanning operation there. And he said that the tannery had recently purchased a tract of land that had hemlocks on it, which they projected would last another 20 years. And he said, but looking at the vast stretch of hemlock trees, it's hard to imagine that it won't last for 100 years. P.S., within 10 years, they'd used up all the hemlocks, and the tannery had closed. And that was the story. We depleted the hemlocks. No one thought about 
maybe we should replant if we want to continue this. In a way, that's probably a good thing. We moved on from tanning, and tourism became our new industry, and certainly that made us world famous, so we can't complain about that. It's very easy to say depleted, like breezily, it's gone, but what happened to the land after that? They're very acid, the pines. They're lying on the ground, then what? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why it took so long for Sullivan County to be settled. A lot of that land just sat there. Eventually the forests regrew, but hemlocks took quite a long time to come back, which I don't think anyone was really complaining about because no one really was fond of the hemlocks except for the tanners. Well, we have plenty of hemlock around here right now. Suppose that you're a hunter and you've got yourself a deer. Can you do your own tanning using the hemlock bark? Probably you could, I would imagine. I don't know why you couldn't do it. I don't think the the chemical content of the trees has changed much. So if you knew the process, I, I'm not sure what the formula was of water to bark, but you know, it had to be mashed. And But I would think absolutely you could. Sure. Why not? I wouldn't recommend it, though, because as I said, it's a smelly and nasty process. And the effluent it has to be disposed of. So it's one of those industries that's probably best left in the past. I wonder if that's why we have so much mountain laurel. They like acid soil. Not a farmer, so I couldn't say, but that's a good theory. It's very possible. Does the Sullivan County Museum here in Hurleyville have displays about the tanning industry? And if you wanted to know more, where could you find out? quick answer to your question is yes, they do have a display on tanning, and there's an incredible amount of information in their archives about the tanning industry. There are some great resources online. There's a paper that was published, one of my favorite pieces about tanning, and I think it's something like the history of the tan bark industry, but it tells the story of the Palin family, and the Palins were very famous tanners for generations. Really? The Palins are still up here? Oh, sure, and Palinville grew in Ulster County around their first tannery, and they might even have come from Greene County originally, I don't know, but at any rate, Rufus Palin started one of the earliest tanneries here in Sullivan County in 1831 in Fallsburg, and he went on to become a congressman. He was well known for his adamant decree that no one smoke on his property. So his tannery was one of the very few that never had a serious fire. Rufus Palin, when he moved on, uh, ran for Congress and was elected. He actually beat Anthony Hasbrook, who was a major figure in our history as well. His cousin, Nicholas Flagler, assumed the operation in Fallsburg, and Flagler became very instrumental in our history, also building the Flagler House, which became our first great hotel here. I would reiterate that along with timber and tourism, it was one of the three main industries that defined Sullivan County. It had a very meteoric existence. It started in 1831. By the 1880s, it was gone. But during the Civil War, tanning was... It was boom times here because of tanning. I think that was our main contribution to the war effort, was the leather tanned here. We tanned more leather than anyone. There's an old saying that the Civil War was won on boots tanned in Sullivan County, and I think with good reason. So we won't find any traces of the old tanneries anywhere around here? 
Well, I'm sure there's still some foundations around, but actually when they began to renovate the covered bridge at Beaverkill just a couple of years ago, they dug up one of the approaches and there were actually some hides in there that had been left over from the tannery, which was just nearby. So there are remnants around and of course the communities that grew up around the tannery are still around. So that's probably its greatest legacy. So now you know about the tanning industry in Sullivan County. We've been listening to John Conway, Sullivan County historian. If there are other topics you'd like to hear about, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Sullivan County historian John Conway, speaking on the topic of the tanning industry. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hi, Angela Page from Folk Plus. On the next Folk Plus, I'll be airing songs about money, being rich, being poor, being broke. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But how many of us ain't broke? Hear the Andrew.